Last week, we started a five-part series on Paul's letter to the Ephesians, the church in Ephesus. And um, we talked about a little of the background from the book of Acts about his visit there. When Paul went to Ephesus, which is this big seaport, huge town, uh, had the Temple of Artemis, giant temple, the stadium was there, the amphitheater, and there was a dust-up. He got in some trouble. Uh, he had been telling everybody that they didn't need to buy the little silver statues that the silversmiths were making because he said that they didn't work uh, and that they weren't real gods. And then that threatened the economy there. And so there was almost a riot and he almost got killed. But he survived and he stayed there two years. And then you fast forward 10 years later, he's in jail in Rome. And he's just very soon he's going to be executed. His trial's going to come up. And so the last thing that he writes is a letter to these Ephesians, these people in Ephesus that he knew very well. And he writes to them, uh, and he has wonderful, wonderful advice uh, for them. And so we're going to read this, uh, the first 10 verses of chapter 2, which is one of the best summaries, general summaries of what Christianity is about that you're ever going to find. And you he made alive when you were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among these, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of body and mind, and so we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, who is rich in mercy, out of his great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him, and made us sit with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That is not your own doing, it is a gift of God. Not because of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. May the Lord bless to our hearts and our minds this reading of his word. Well, Paul doesn't beat around the bush, does he? Starts right in there, the first sentence, and says, You're dead. You're dead. You're on the way to nowhere. It's a dead end. Actually, there's three parts of this scripture. There's the bad news, there's the good news, and there's the result. Let's take the bad news first. Paul says that every one of us is a sinner, and the wages of sin is death. Now, sinner, I have to say, in, in today's world, is kind of a loaded term. I understand that it, it, it's looked at in many different ways. In fact, if I were to take a poll, and if we were to say, how many of you here today consider yourselves to be sinners? We would get a lot of people say yes. But I bet you we would get a bunch of people that would say no. I'm not a sinner. I'm a, I'm a relatively good person. I'm a nice guy. I try to do good things. That, they would, that would be their self-image that they would have. So what is it? 
Well, the word sinner in this text is the word hamartia. And it is an archery term, and it means to shoot an arrow and to miss the target. So anyone who has shot an arrow in their life and missed the target is a sinner. How many here today have always hit the target in their life? So it's a pretty broad definition, isn't it, of, of, of sinners? It catches everybody pretty much because there's no person who's ever lived perfectly. There's no person who's not blown it, who hasn't missed the target in a whole bunch of different ways in their life. So to change that condition of being a sinner, we have to do what's called repent. Repent is a military term which means about face. It means to turn around and go in the other direction. Now in some church traditions, this repenting is really, really emphasized a lot, probably too much. In the church that I was raised in, every worship service, and it was a fundamentalist church, so we, we went on Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. And it didn't matter what service you were at, at the end of the sermon there, the minister would give the, quote, invitation. The invitation was to come down during the singing of the last hymn, come down to the front row and meet with the minister and either be saved, which means that you, you would be baptized. We kept the, the water warm all the time and ready. Um, you'd be baptized or you would confess your sin and repent and uh, rededicate your life to Christ. And that was more common because most people had already been baptized. So there would be people that would do that over and over and over. You, you never knew what they had done, but you wondered during the service what, what it was all about. Um, Garrison Keillor, in his book Lake Wobegon Days, tells the story of Larry the Sad Boy. Larry the Sad Boy was saved 12 times, which is an all-time record in the Lutheran Church. In the Lutheran Church, there is no altar call, no organist playing just as I am, and no minister with shiny hair manipulating the congregation. These are Scandinavian Lutherans, and they repent the same way they sin, discreetly, tastefully, at the right times, and then they bring a jello salad for afterwards. Keeler writes, granted, we're born in original sin and we're worthless and vile, but 12 conversions is just too many. God didn't mean us to feel guilty all our lives. There comes a point where you should dry your tears and join the building and grounds committee and start working on the church roof and make church coffee and be of use. It's not like every time you make a mistake, you have to repent. William Barclay wrote, God is love, sin is a crime, not against law, but against love. Sin is not so much breaking God's law as it's breaking God's heart. We're dead when we follow the wrong directions in life, when we get off on the wrong way. The word that we, that we use whenever we say the Lord's Prayer and we come to that little line which says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our de debtors, and there's some people around you that are saying trespasses, you know, at the same time. Well, that word, which is translated either trespasses or debts, is paraptoma. And it literally means to take the wrong road. To take the wrong road in your life. That's the debts and the trespasses that we have. John Ortberg uh, 
tells a story in one of his books about when he was renting a car. And this is back before the day when everybody had GPS on their phones. And the, the car rental person said, asked if he'd like to rent a GPS device for the car. He didn't really want one, but his wife insisted that he get one. He thought it was just another backseat driver telling him what to do. He didn't really want that. But he went ahead and he, he got it. And uh, there's a little voice that comes there, you know, and says, turn left here, turn right, do this. But he just didn't trust the machine, and it seemed like he was getting off track, so he just unplugged her. And then he got hopelessly lost. He was in a new town. He didn't know where he was. So he plugged her back in, and he expected her to say, you think I'm going to help you now? (laughs) You rejected me. But she didn't say that. She just very quietly said, Recalculating route. When safe to do so, make a U-turn. Isn't that great? God lets us make U-turns. When we've gone off on the wrong road, done the wrong thing, and then unplugged ourselves from God, thinking that we know the best way, the minute we plug back in again, God just says very, calculate, very quietly, recalculating route. When safe to do so, make a U-turn. With God, U-turns are allowed. With God, missing the mark is expected. With God, a slip and a fall is just part of the human condition. We're dead by refusing to follow the directions for living that God has given to us. We unplug God's voice because we think we know a better way to live. But we don't. One of the things that God has said to us that I don't know if human beings are ever going to ever going to learn this one lesson because we we certainly haven't learned it yet jesus said that the only way to fight evil is with good not with more evil the only way to cure violence is with love not with more violence but will we ever get that message will palestinians and israelis ever understand that you can't outkill your way out of this problem Will we in our country ever understand that the solution is not endless wars in Afghanistan or Iraq or Syria? You cannot outkill the problem of terrorism. There's another way, Jesus said, and we better start listening to that voice which tries to recalculate our lives. It's important that we understand that. And so we come to the good news, which is that we're saved by grace through faith. Beautiful news. The word grace, you know, a lot of Christian terms have become a little archaic and shop-worn, but not grace. We still have kids that are named grace. Uh, We have the word gracious and graceful, and they're beautiful words that we use all the time. Frederick Buechner's definition is this. Grace is something that you can never get but only be given. There's no way to earn it or deserve it or bring it about any more than you can deserve the taste of raspberries and cream or earn good looks, or bring about your own birth. The crucial eccentricity of the Christian faith is the assertion that people are saved by grace. There's nothing you have to do. There's nothing you have to do. There is nothing you have to do. So you can't earn grace. It is given. And it's the good news of this text. You were dead, but now you're not. Why? 
because of God's gift of grace to you. You can't manufacture it yourself. I uh, enjoy playing golf, but I'm absolutely terrible because I never play more than once or twice a year, usually at the church tournament or so. But there is something really satisfying when you just hit the ball perfectly and it goes exactly where you wanted it to go, straight and true. It's, it's a lovely experience. But then they kind of ruin the game by the introduction of the concept of par. <laughs> par is the number of strokes, usually three, four, or five, that you're supposed to take to get the ball in the hole. It's the number of strokes that you should take to get the ball in the hole. It ruins everything because the only people that can do that are people on TV. <laughs> the guys that play golf on TV, those are the guys that, that are doing, oh, Scott Kale, he gets close once in a while. But, you know, uh, it's, it's really, uh, it, it kind of brings you down because you're just living a subpar life. Everyone knows that. Willie Nelson solved the problem. He, he built a little golf course on his ranch in Texas. And he decided that the first hole was par 10. <laughs> so when he shoots a nine, he brags about getting a birdie. Doesn't really work that way, though. You can't conjure it up yourself. But the good news is this, actually, that when the judgment day comes, and the Bible talks a lot about the judgment day. There is a judgment day, you know. Someday we are going to be called to account for our life and how we have lived. That sounds pretty scary until you know this bit of good news. The New Testament proclaims that at some unforeseeable time in the future, God will ring down the final curtain on history, and there will come a day on which all of our days and all the judgments upon us and all our judgments on each other will themselves be judged. But the judge will be Christ. In other words, the one who judges us most finally will be the one who loves us most fully. That the judge is the one who has already given his life for us, already loves us totally and unconditionally, and has given his grace. It's nice to know that that's the courtroom that we turn up in. And then we have the third section. We were dead, we're saved by grace, and now... We are privileged to serve. Let me read you the last verse again. For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. One of the most profound insights of Christianity is contained in this verse. This is our purpose on earth. This is our goal. This is our mission. We were created for good works. We're created to do good things in this world. We forget this a lot because our society basically tells us that we were created to consume. We were created to consume good food or good cars or nice houses. That, that, that's what our life is about. And the, the better stuff that we consume, the more our life is worth. But no, this says that we were created to do exactly what God said to do good works. And you know, when you, whenever you meet someone who is doing what they were created to do, there is an energy 
There's a joy, there's a passion when you come across somebody who is doing exactly what they should be doing in life. When you talk to Steve Main about composing music, there's a joy and energy there because it's what he was created to do. When you talk to Don about theology and teaching theology, there's an energy and a passion there because that's what he loves to do. There's a man in our congregation, he was here at the earlier service, named Bruce Wolf. He's a sculptor. And when I went over to visit him in his studio and he showed me his, his, his sculptures, there's a, a, a passion and intensity. And he talks about it because he's doing exactly what God created him to do in this world. When Maureen and I and the girls were on vacation years ago in Ireland, we spent the night at a farm bed and breakfast on a sheep farm on the Dingle Peninsula in the western part of Ireland. And uh, after dinner, the owner asked us if we would like to uh, see a demonstration of his sheepdog herding the sheep. And we said, yeah, yeah, we'd love to do that. And so we went outside it was glorious because it was the only two hours of the week that it wasn't raining. And, and we went outside and he went over to the barn and he opened the door and he got about five of the sheep that are out there. And when this black and white border collie that had just been sleeping on the floor in the house, when that collie saw those sheep, I thought he was going to levitate. He was so excited. He was shaking. He was just so into it and intense and focused. And he started running so fast and moving those sheep around. And the owner had these little whistle calls that he would do. And then they would come back and move them here and do all this kind of stuff. The owner looked at us and said, you know, they were bred for this. They live for this. Everything else in their life is just waiting to get to do this. This is their purpose in life, to boss sheep around. So God made us for good works. That's why it feels good. You know, when you go down, last night we had people feeding at the Hope Cafe. And when Marina and I did it a couple months ago, when you walk away from that evening of feeding homeless people, your heart just feels good. It feels like you did something good. And that's how God made us, that whenever we reach out and do something good for, for other people, we are made to feel good because we're doing what we were meant to do. We're doing what God created us to do. That's our job. So we have here this bad news about our condition of being in sin, good news of the salvation, and the result, which is the purpose that God made us for. It's a beautiful thing to be reminded of God's grace and the extravagance of his grace. Heard a story about a, a young girl who was with her parents, and they were in one of those old-fashioned country stores, uh, and the parents were shopping. She was waiting patiently, and it was one of those ones where they had a big barrel of hard candy there. And uh, the owner of the store invited her to reach in for free and to grab a handful of candy. But she didn't do it. She just stood there, kind of hesitated, so he reached in, grabbed a big handful of candy and gave it to her. And in the car on the way home, the parents asked her and said, uh, how come you didn't reach in and get the candy? You're not that shy. She said, well, his hands are bigger. <laughs> in Christ, we discover how big God's hand is. 
the biggest hand you can imagine, which comes down with the biggest, biggest load of grace and hands it to us for us to live our lives with. So God made us to be alive in Christ. How can we ever thank God for such love? Amen.